1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Dermot McCulloch about his new book, Thomas Cromwell, A Revolutionary Life. Dermot, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
2: I'm a professor of the history of the church in the University of Oxford in the UK, and uh, I'm, uh, as you can guess, a historian, and I've been a historian throughout my career. Uh, I went to Cambridge University uh, in England, and uh, there did a doctorate on Tudor history under the great Tudor historian, Sir Geoffrey Elton. And from there, I have well, I taught in a seminary, a Methodist seminary, and uh, later in my career, I, I came to Oxford. I've been in Oxford for nearly quarter of a century, and during that time I've written a lot on Tudoring and in various ways. I've written another big biography of Thomas Cromwell's great friend, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. That was about a quarter of a century ago. And also I've, I've uh, written more widely on the history of the church, so a history of the whole European Reformation, and uh, also after that, expanding still further, a history of all Christianity. Everywhere, at all times, I called it Christianity the First
1: 3,000 Years. Uh, but Thomas Cromwell is my latest book. So you've, you, you've, you've had this progression from talking about this one figure in the Anglican Church in the 16th century to talking about all of the history of Christianity. What brought you back to uh, uh, talking about uh, a contemporary of Cramner's?
2: Well, I thought I'd ranged widely enough for the time being. I did that entire general history. I then wrote a a book on silence as a theme in Christian history. So uh, that's uh, taking very wide subjects. And I thought after that something which I've been thinking about for a long time, getting back to Thomas Cromwell, which is a very different sort of book because those books were about synthesizing, gathering uh, the uh, fruits of scholarship from lots of other people. This book was about going to the archives of uh, the Kingdom of England, uh, which are still in the National Archives in London, and going through document by document to get a sense of what Thomas Cromwell was like. Very different process. Fascinating. I like both sorts of history. But this uh, this was a big project.
1: One of the things that I really enjoyed in your book was that you make your engagement with the documents part of your narrative. You and it's a fascinating examination as to how to not just take the you know not where you're getting the documents from and the fact that we're still uncovering documents about Cromwell's life, but also how you're explaining their interpretation and how to read it, it with in, in some respects as a they would be understood by a 16th century man such as cromwell versus how we might interpret it in the modern times
2: yes and that's that's what i i hope the reader will enjoy because i invite the reader to come with me and i'm the guide into uh, those back corridors where the documents are stored and taking out each one and putting it in its place. Uh, the, the, The archive which I was using, which is huge, Uh, is part of uh, say, the Government Archive of England and it's been available to the public for the last 150 years or so Uh, and it is the personal papers by and large of Thomas Cromwell confiscated from from his archive when he was arrested by King Henry VIII and they'd been lying in the National Archives ever since Uh, they uh, were catalogued and arranged by Victorian archivists in the 19th century And as they did it, and and it was a a heroic job, they, of course, made mistakes about how to date things and and the significance of them. And so one of my jobs was to go through the listings which they'd made and which they'd put into print and just test every document. And and, uh, with what you might call a hermeneutic of suspicion, you go to the document and you say, right, you proved to me that you are actually from 1533. And not from 1537. So I I, I put that spotlight on each document. And most of them passed, but interestingly, a lot didn't. And then I would have to fish them out of the Victorian arrangement and put them in their right place in the jigsaw. That was fascinating.
1: It really is interesting to see how you do that process in the book. And yet you also explain that for all the wealth that exists in this archive, that we, there are huge gaps in our understanding of Thomas Cromwell's life. Uh, we aren't even entirely certain about the pronunciation of his last name. And you, this, of course, it comes out most dramatically in terms of talking about his childhood and his early years.
2: Yes, because he was uh, from a very obscure background in a very obscure um, village upstream up the River Thames from London and you wouldn't expect much documentation about this sort of person uh, and then of course he, he, he fled from his home village to Italy where he was still a humble person so unless he paid taxes or committed a crime you wouldn't expect him to turn up in the archive it was only became, when he became uh, a person of importance which was very late in his career really in his late 30s that you start getting this, the, the, the volume of documentation, his own papers, things which people wrote to him, mentions in lawsuits in the legal records
1: of, of the kingdom of England
2: so uh, the, uh, the early life is really quite difficult to
1: get hold of to get a hold on and as you mentioned as well that at the end of his life in you know facing an impending in, in imprisonment and trial that he also uh, purged through some of those documents so there, there, there are gaps that are in, in the record. Yeah, I think not him, but his household.
2: So the the sequence of things was that he was arrested very suddenly in the year 1540 by the king's agents. And uh, the household would be confronted with this extraordinary turnaround in his fortunes. And my interpretation of what they did to the archive was that they destroyed half of it. And what they destroyed were the copies of the letters which he would have written to other people. So we've got thousands of letters in the archive written to him uh, in old-fashioned terms. if looking at an old-fashioned desk. You'd call that the in-tray. And what's missing is the out-tray, the documents which he created, he signed, the letters he wrote. And um, he would have kept copies of those, and they've all gone. Now, what I think must have happened was that the household systematically destroyed them, burnt them, they must have sat up night after night burning them. And why do you do that? It's because you're likely to be convicted on what you say to other people, not what they say to you. You can always explain that away. So it was a good try to try and save their master. It didn't work because he was beheaded, uh, executed by Henry VIII, but it was a good try. But what it's done is left us without his voice. It's very difficult though it's not impossible but it's, it's it's intriguingly and enjoyably difficult to get the sense of um him talking all the archive all those documents uh, virtually are the impress of him on other people and how they react to him so that's that was my job to to just get the traces of his voice from this interestingly skewed, but huge archive. I mean, it, it took me five years just sitting down with the documents, going through them one by one, trying to get the right order, uh, trying to see the patterns within them. Uh, and then I started writing the book.
1: <laughs> Let's uh, start uh, talking about Cromwell's life by talking about those early years that he was growing up. You, you described that his family uh, was, was, was very humble. How does he go from these humble beginnings to uh, having a public career. He ran away, he ran (laughs) away from home.
2: (laughs) And he didn't just run up to London, which is a matter of um, five or six miles away. No, he went to Italy, which is a really ambitious thing to do. Shows you the sort of uh, um, potential this boy had. Uh, and in Italy, he was still absolutely no one. And the the one story which seems to give us a clue, shed some light on what happened, is a sort of romance written about 20 years after his death by an Italian novelist. Uh, and it tells the story of an utterly penniless teenager. Uh, on the streets of Florence, the great city of Florence, the greatest cultural center in Italy, the greatest cultural center of the known world at that stage, therefore. There he is on the streets, and a young merchant uh, from a, a very important family in Florence called Baldi, uh took pity on him and took him into the household and uh, employed him and made him uh, an administrator. Uh, and that's probably true because this Frescobaldi family were great merchants who traded with England. Uh, they traded wine up to Northern Europe, and from Northern Europe, and England in particular, they got cloth. Uh, And and this trade had gone on since the 13th century with this Folescobaldi family. They still exist, incidentally. They're still there in Florence selling wine. Uh, And and you can see why this boy might have been useful. Once they spotted his intelligence, they could use him in this international trade. And so we get traces of him in the great international exchange city of Antwerp in the Low Countries, now Belgium. And uh, there are little other traces in Southampton, which is the English port through which the Italian wine trade went. So it's fascinating bits of the jigsaw. uh, And that take took him to the 1520s. And then something rather dramatic happened. He, from being this um, interesting, busy, uh, successful in a very minor way, sort of a merchant and lawyer, was taken up by the greatest man in the realm after the king, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. Now there's a, a sudden transformation of fortunes. He, I can date it quite precisely, 1524, and by that stage, he was nearly 40. So it's a long time to wait to get yourself on the national stage, and even then, uh, he was just a servant of
1: the cardinal. Uh you describe the skill set that he brings to the cardinal's service, and it makes it understandable why he stood out to Wolsey. He, you he, t- describe how during his time on the continent, he would have picked up these languages, and he seems to be a, a very versatile servant. And yet it's more than just his language skills that, that he brings to uh, the service, isn't it?
2: Well that's that the language skill is
1: absolutely crucial that no one seemed to notice this before
2: that's what made a difference speaking fluent Italian and the point is something quite quite special here because the cardinal had decided cardinal woolsey uh was the greatest man of the land he it was also uh hugely. Uh, extravagant and was determined to make his mark on history. And the way you did that in the 16th century was to build your own tomb while you're still alive, and to make it the most magnificent tomb possible. In Wolsey's case, and there was competition for the best tomb in England at the time because there was already one, and it was the tomb of King Henry VIII's father henry the seventh and you can still see it if you go to westminster abbey it is magnificent and it is made by italian sculptors so wolsey had to have something even better than king henry the seventh and he had to make, uh, have it made by italian sculptors but who would do the negotiation with them uh, just the artistic negotiation, apart from anything else. Can you imagine the cardinal not liking the way his nose looked on his sculpture? And you need someone to go to the, the temperamental Italian sculptor and say, well, uh, Master Robizzano, uh the cardinal doesn't quite like the nose. Do you think you could just tweak it a bit and do that with a little joke and make it smooth over any ill feelings? And then, of course, report back to the cardinal in English. So you need someone who is the best Italian in England, and that was Thomas Cromwell after those years in Florence and the other great cities of Italy. That's the skill which the cardinal particularly wanted from this
1: otherwise apparently undistinguished lawyer. You make this very interesting point there which is something that I I think gets back to what you were saying earlier about the the absence of his voice which is the degree to which uh, Cromwell was a really uh, capable manager of people and how difficult that is to sometimes access in some of these documents.
2: Yes, exactly. And, and what has often come across in previous accounts of his life was the, the cold bureaucrat, because that's the sort of papers we've got. We've got lots and lots of administrative papers. My my great old doctoral supervisor, Sir Geoffrey Elton, was fascinated by that side of Cromwell. And um, his Cromwell came across as a, something of a, a bit of a machine, if you know what I mean. But what I found was a man who clearly made friends very easily and had charm and a certain rather dark wit as well. And uh, that got him further than just being a busy administrator uh, it, but oddly, doing the administration for the cardinal uh, gained him friends um, because the job was not just um, negotiating the tomb, it was providing the finance for the institutions uh, around the tomb, which were colleges big big colleges of priests to pray for the cardinal soul, uh, and they would be the again usual Wolsey, they were the best and most magnificent colleges anywhere in England, and they're of course very expensive to found. So Wolsey decided to dissolve small monasteries, monasteries which he regarded as not doing much of a job. And it was Cromwell who did that. That involved traveling across most of lowland England. And you you can see him building up friendships as he went, which would last for the rest of his career. So these are the foundations of the sort of relationships which he would have when he went on to an even greater service under the king himself, King Henry VIII.
1: Now, all of this is happening in an England which at this time is almost overwhelmingly Catholic, and yet it's on the cusp of this important historical transition point. I was wondering if you could maybe widen our scope a bit, talk a bit about that context, how that affects Wolsey and how Cromwell then transitions from service to Wolsey, which you would think given what's going to happen uh, a few years afterward, is going to effectively doom his career to – serving the king himself
2: yeah well the ref- the european reformation had uh, exploded in 1517 which is seven years before um cromwell entered the cardinal service. And you'd expect a, a good servant of the cardinal to be a good, loyal ser- son of the church. But it was, it's quite clear that uh, he was becoming already a Protestant, you know, a follower of the Reformation, which had started with Martin Luther in Wittenberg in Germany and had spread to other great centers in Switzerland, Zurich, uh, and uh, had, was now beginning to affect England. Uh, Despite the cardinal's best efforts and despite the the king, who was a a very devout Catholic at that stage, trying to to persecute Protestants, Cromwell was quietly uh, using the cardinal's colleges to place young men who were interested in the Reformation in a position to influence the University of Oxford, and he imported such young men, academics, to Oxford from the University of Cambridge to do this, and much was the scandal when it was revealed that they were Protestants. The name of Cromwell didn't come up. So already under the Cardinal, Cromwell was uh, a Protestant, a quiet um, Protestant, quietly using the Cardinal's very Catholic project for his own end. And then uh, the Cardinal, uh, Wolsey, uh, failed to do the great thing which the King wanted and that was to uh, get rid of his first marriage. His first marriage was to Catherine of Aragon. It had produced only one daughter, and King Henry VIII was paranoid about having a male heir to the throne, a man to succeed him. Uh, Catherine wouldn't deliver the goods. At the same time, the king fell in love with an extremely spirited, intelligent, uh, personable lady, Anne Boleyn and was determined to marry her. And um, the cardinal's job was to say that marriage number one to, Ar- uh, to Catherine of Aragon had never happened. Really difficult job, impossible, in fact, because the Pope would never agree. Pope had other uh, concerns behind him, even more powerful monarchs. So Woolsey fell on those grounds. And uh, particularly pressing his fall on the king was that lady Anne Bullen, who determined decided that the cardinal was her enemy. And so between Henry's sense of frustration and Anne's determination to destroy the cardinal, and and he was forced out of power in 1529. Now, what would Cromwell do uh, as Wolsey's servant? Well, he did something rather subtle. He didn't desert the cardinal, as so many of the cardinal servants did, to scuttle away. No, he stayed with the cardinal, but he also entered the king's service. So now, in 1529-30, to 30, he was serving two masters, and the, the way he did this rather difficult thing was precisely the tomb again, because the king uh, stripped Wolsey of his landed property Uh, when the cardinal was made to resign, but also, literally, stripped him of his tomb. It was still not complete. It was in uh, workmen's warehouses in in Westminster, and so he he took the tomb for himself. And who better to go on negotiating with those Italian craftsmen but the arch-Italian Englishman, Thomas Cromwell. So that's what he did for the king to start with. That's how he entered the king's service.
1: And he quickly transitions from there to a seat in one of the most momentous parliaments in all of English history.
2: Yes. The the great parliament, which has been was called by the Victorians the Reformation Parliament, because that was its great business. It gave its consent to the break between England and Rome, the Pope, which had been a relationship there for a thousand years, and now... Uh, With Parliament's consent, the king was recognized as supreme head of the church, which from Henry VIII's point of view was simply to get him his marriage to Anne Boleyn, the, the declaration that he was a free man to marry. But it would become something much more because this independent Church of England would now be pulled towards the Protestant Reformation, which need not have happened It could simply have been a fragment of the universal Catholic Church under the supreme headship of Henry VIII. No, thanks primarily to this man, Thomas Cromwell, who was steadily rising in the king's esteem and rising in power. uh, It was pulled towards the the Reformation bit by bit, the Reformation happening across the water. And Parliament was there. Thomas Cromwell was a member of this Parliament, as he had been the previous Parliament in 1523, even before he'd entered the King, uh, the, the Cardinal's service. But now uh, he, he was clearly fascinated by Parliament, and now what he said to the King was, "Look, don't just do this momentous thing, breaking with Rome by some proclamation, which is bound to cause trouble in in the kingdom. Why don't you get the kingdom to consent?" in its formal institution, Parliament, the Lords and the Commons, the Bishops and the Abbots assembled at Westminster in Parliament, if they say uh, that you are Supreme Head, if they recognize you as Supreme Head, that will be a much stronger thing. So I think that's the great idea which he brought to the King, which had such consequences, because the English Parliament from then on, right up to the present day, became central to English government. Uh, and virtually every other parliament in medieval Europe and virtually everywhere had parliaments. Virtually e- every other parliament withered away during the 16th century, but not the English parliament. With this great uh, thing that it did in the 1530s, this momentous break with Rome, it was doing something far more important than it had ever done. And that gave it uh, the precedent of doing other very important things as the years went by. So this seems to me to be one of the main reasons for remembering Thomas Cromwell, because he's the heart of this great revolution in making England a place where Parliament mattered beside the king.
0: /nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: It also gets to another part of his life that I I think is difficult to access but you uh, have already highlighted, which is the notion of management skills. How does a king get his uh, agenda, his his, his, his his measures through parliament? And it, it seems that – and this is something that you see uh, you know, kings having to turn to as parliament establishes itself, which is this notion of a good manager, a good person manager, a good parliamentary manager. And it seems that Cromwell really is the first of these truly great parliamentary managers who can get the king's business through. Yes, and precisely uh, in the Commons, the Commons, the, the
2: Commons, which uh, the representatives of the towns of England and the counties, the shires of England, had been the junior partner all the time. That the House of Lords, the nobility, was where things had previously been mat- mattered. But Cromwell was a member of Parliament, a member of that, the Commons. And so he he was managing all this situation within the Commons, and I, I think clearly fascinated by doing this. And, and the, yes, as you say, the very first person to do this, there would be many more parliamentary managers as the year went years went by. But this was the precedent for so much else. Of course, he did, in the end, uh, become a member of the House of Lords. But by then, the great break with Rome had been cemented into place. And the first steps were being made
1: to... Uh, pull the Church of England into the Reformation. You've already mentioned the role that Anne Boleyn is playing in politics, and there is this popular perception of and of Thomas Cromwell as sort of uh, Anne's uh, you know agent, or or, or that yep. uh, Anne is that that uh, Anne is Cromwell's patron, and and you argue that that is a misunderstanding of their relationship. Yes,
2: and I guess this may be one of the biggest changes in the picture of Cromwell uh, that my book uh, puts forward. Uh, This image of Anne and Cromwell as close allies in pushing forward the Protestant Reformation is very old. Goes right back into the 1560s, and it was created by certain tactful silences on the part of the great historian of the Protestant Reformation, John Fox. Fox, who created a book called Acts and Monuments, which we, we come to know as Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's a great epic story of the English Reformation, and in it you, you come away with the impression that Anne and Cromwell were allies. Uh, and so there that's the position in, in, in most of English history. But it's wrong. It's wrong. They weren't allies. Uh, they were enemies. They loathed each other. And far from advancing Cromwell's career, Anne uh, held it up, obstructed it. And yet, during the years at church, she was the wife of the king and queen of England, in effect. Cromwell's steadily advancing without the titles you'd expect, the offices you'd expect to symbolize the power he was getting. Uh, How can we explain that? Well, I think the king was anxious to give Cromwell power, but was scared of Anne. Um, King Henry VIII was actually quite a cowardly man, and he hated open screaming rows. And it is quite clear that Anne Bullen was rather good at screaming rows, And so I think you get the picture that uh, the king would stealthily give Cromwell things to do uh, without Anne being uh, taken to the position where she would directly confront the king. So in other words, the the, the central uh, way of looking at the early 1530s and the politics of it is to see Thomas Cromwell with his own agenda and Anne with her own agenda. They're both religious Protestants. But people who share an ideology don't necessarily have to like each other. Just look at modern politics and you'll see the point. Uh, and in fact, that the, the, the Cromwell's great memory was of his beloved master, the Cardinal, whom Anne had destroyed. And so always in their relationship there was that tension. And in the end, he, Cromwell, destroyed her. If any one man was responsible for Anne. Uh, being accused of adultery and incest, ridiculous charges, uh, uh, and then being executed, it was Thomas Cromwell.
1: And it says something about his uh, performance and his abilities that he was able to get to a, a point, a status, where he could be in a position to make these charges. You describe this as sent to becoming uh, Henry's chief minister in, in, in 1534. And it really is a a, a, a of of you know triumphing through merit yes and, and
2: using the system very subtly and cleverly he did get various formal offices he became Um, Master of the Jewels, for instance, Um, Clerk of the Hanapa, wonderful title, and even Mm -hmm. Chancellor of the Exchequer, which in the English uh, governmental system now is a very important office. It wasn't then. But each of these rather minor offices gave him a foothold in one or other bits of Tudor government, vital bits. So he could look round government in, from these positions and, and use the position in ways which another man might not. And he's so good at improvising in politics. Uh, and that immensely impressed me. Uh, the, the character of his government was constant improvisation, seizing the chance uh, and, and getting on in that way.
1: And he uses this to gradually improve his own personal situation, but he also uses it to continue this process of religious reform. Could you elaborate on the ways in which he is shifting uh, England in a more evangelical direction during the 1530s?
2: Yes, he was constantly making quiet overtures to the Protestant princes in Northern Europe, that's one way, and establishing links there. He was also using uh, very great powers which Henry VIII had given him with a brand new title, the Vice Gerunt in Spirituals. That's a title that no one else has held in English history. And what it meant was that Henry made him deputy in the, his new Church of England. Just as Cardinal Wolsey had been deputy for the Pope in England, now Cromwell had very similar powers, and he would now use them to gradually shackle the institutions of the Church to the king, and uh, bring the uh, monasteries and the friaries under the king's control. Uh, and also to to do positive things, as you say, to move England towards the Protestant Reformation. The the, the the big goal, the thing which would bring the people of England to Protestantism, would be a Bible in their own language. Now, the church had forbidden the Bible. In English since the early 15th century it's unusual in Europe that most parts of Europe would have had access to the Bible in their own language but not England and Cromwell's greatest achievement I think is to gradually subtly persuade the king who was not enthusiastic about this project to give it his backing flatter the king into thinking that it was his idea and so actually after Anne's death Uh, an English Bible was authorized and, and in fact, uh, made official. Uh, A Bible in English, which would largely been the work of a man called William Tyndall, uh, a translator of genius from the Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew into English. And Tyndall, as his Bible was being authorized by the king, was sitting in a prison cell in the Low Countries, the, uh, the, the the territory of the Habsburg Roman Emperors, uh, Holy Roman Emperors, who had arrested him for heresy, and went on to execute him, with the connivance of Henry VIII. This is the extraordinary thing. The man who allowed Tyndall to die uh, in uh, the Emperor's prison was also the man who authorised Tyndall's Bible, and that is thanks to Thomas Cromwell. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. Well, I'm not sure that Henry VIII ever realized that this was so. Uh, and that's the mark of Cromwell's genius, His again, his improvisation.
1: I'd like to turn to another aspect of the genius to which you've already made mention, which is his role in the downfall of Anne Boleyn. Could you elaborate upon how he's what, what's going on in terms of Henry and his marriages and Cromwell's role, not just in terms of Anne Boleyn's marriage, uh, uh, to Henry, but also that of uh, Jane Seymour's.
2: Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, we have to remember that the the relationship between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn was a, a passionate love affair. And that's fine for Anne, as long as the passion was love. But she, like her predecessor, had a series of miscarriages and she only produced one daughter. And as uh, another miscarriage happened in, in the winter of 1536, the king's passion turned to disappointment, frustration, and in the end, hatred. And Cromwell was watching. Cromwell was watching, of course. Now, who would be the next heir to the throne if Anne wasn't there? It would be, in fact, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, the Lady Mary, who in the end, to uh, anticipate history, went on to be Mary I, the Queen Queen Mary I of England. So Cromwell allied with Mary against Anne and in doing so gained lots of allies and did not have many friends um, in in the powerful quarters of the land apart from her family and her uh, various Protestant appointees as bishops. So it's a job of um, using Mary uh, 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 to push forward an agenda making sure the king's anger with Anne remained high and what you can do then is Pour poison into the king's ears, which might have already they might have already tried, but now the king was listening. And once the king, uh, King Henry VIII's psychology is that once he has turned against you, he will believe any old nonsense, which will be there to justify his hatred. And that's what happened to Anne, so executed on charges of adultery, incest, which um, I'll, I'll almost. Certainly, utterly untrue. And the next wife along, um, obscenely quickly, frankly, the next wedding was to Jane Seymour. And now Thomas Cromwell was there, not only the ally of Mary, but also of Jane Seymour's family. Very soon, within a year, his only son Gregory was married to Queen Jane Seymour's sister. Thus, Gregory became the king's brother-in-law and Thomas Cromwell in an informal sense at least became the king's uncle now this is extraordinary you think of this humble boy from the village of Putney is now the king's effective uncle and think of what it would mean if you're one of the blue-blooded aristocrats of England you would be outraged and also rather scared what would happen now you've got this 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 nexus, this link between the Seymour family, who appear to be, you know, they're going to be there uh, in power, and the most powerful minister. What is that going to do to your position, say, as the Duke of Norfolk, uh, the other great power of the court? So a very explosive situation by uh, the end of the 1530s. Poor Jane Seymour, she died in childbirth in 1537, but a son survived Prince Edward, at last a male heir. And um, obviously all those relationships still in place to the Cromwells. Uh, and the, the, all sorts of uh, loose ends in politics from 1537 to eight. and the story is one of gradual build-up to the crisis which in the end destroyed Thomas Cromwell.
1: You make uh, an interesting point about that crisis that corrected something that I had, uh, you know, misunderstood, which was the uh, re- the what happened with Anne of Cleves, because you talk about Cromwell's role in terms of arranging uh, the marriage between uh, Henry and his and his fourth wife, and you point out this, that we have made certain assumptions about. And of Cleves that aren't necessarily true. But most famously, the that uh, King Henry found her unattractive, and as you point out, that you know that that doesn't necessarily hold up with what we know, and that there uh, that it was, it was probably a much more complex picture than that.
2: Well, yeah, it's complex uh, in also, I mean, complex diplomacy around it and so on, but at the heart of it, there is actually something rather simple that for, for reasons which remain utterly mysterious, Henry VIII found this, this fourth wife who turned up from Cleves utterly loathsome. Anne, poor Anne, has been labeled uh, famously in history as the Flanders mayor. And the story that Holbein, Hans Holbein, the great court portraitist, produced a flattering image of her, which didn't look like her. Actually, this is not true at all, because we have the portrait which the Cleves court uh, had actually pa- had painted of her, and it's now in my own university. It hangs in St John's College, Oxford. And if you compare that with the Holbein, it is clear they're the same woman. They're, they're, it's recognisable, and the Holbein doesn't really make um, many changes to it. Uh, she looks perfectly fine as far as I can see, and uh, there is something mysterious about Henry VIII's ideas of beauty and some sort of sexual chemistry which didn't work. and These are lost in the recesses of Henry VIII's mind. But for whatever reason, when poor Anne turned up after a long and arduous journey from Western Germany through Calais up through Kent, and then the king set eyes on her in uh, at the very end of December 1539, the king loathed her at sight, was so disappointed. But he simply couldn't get out of the marriage. So the marriage went ahead in January, a day late, and it must have been the most gloomy marriage of the 16th century, (laughs) followed by the most gloomy wedding night. But the king was trapped. And the only way that he could get out of this marriage would be by having churchmen declare it null and void, declaring it a simple non-marriage. What reason could you give? a non-marriage? Well, the only feasible reason was non-consummation, which, if you um, simplify the legal language, means the king could not perform a sexual act with her. Can you imagine the arrogant, magnificent Henry VIII having to stand before a group of serious-looking clergy, saying, I'm sorry, I just can't get it up with Queen Anne. <laughs> and the humiliation of that, uh, and and the humiliation would have to be Uh, deflected, and who would be the man to deflect it on Thomas Cromwell, the man who'd set up the marriage in the first place.
1: Was this the only thing that was souring Henry on Cromwell, or were there other factors at play as well?
2: Well, around him, an increasingly sour atmosphere because of the way in which many of the nobility led by the Duke of Norfolk simply resented his position, which was growing all the time. And Cromwell was... uh, I think reacting to that by grabbing at more and more power and in the end a great ancient title of nobility he was made earl of essex in spring 1540 and you know the earls of essex stretch back to the norman conquest now the putney brewer's son Earl of Essex. And a and massive snob like the Duke of Norfolk must have loathed that. So it's not so much the, the king, but those around the king who would be very prepared to pour poison into the king's ear, just as Cromwell and uh, Anne's enemies had poured poison about Anne into the king's ear. And, and, and the, the problem about being Thomas Cromwell, as a servant of Henry VIII, is the same problem that Thomas Wolsey had, had You're fine as long as you deliver the goods, and you have to go on delivering the goods, and the king will esteem you and treat you like his favorite son. But the moment you make a mistake, the moment you don't deliver the goods, that's the fatal moment. And that was the moment the nobility seized on to pour their poison into the king's ear.
1: You, I, I, uh, you recount the very dramatic moment at which he's arrested and then you go on to talk about the, the case that is levied against him. I was wondering if you could summarize that for us and the manner of his death because it, it really captures some of the, the, the drama. And, and also it, it seems to me at the end some, uh, a good deal of, of Cromwell's dignity. Yes, Uh,
2: the atmosphere got very, very manic in late spring 1540. And Cromwell was uh, preparing his coup d'etat against his enemies and there were arrests of his enemies. And then one afternoon after a parliamentary session where he'd been at Parliament with all the great nobility and all the members of Parliament, he walked into the Privy Council chamber to find his colleagues with soldiers to arrest him. And that Duke of Norfolk, about whom I spoke, tore the ceremonial George, uh, the symbol of his membership of the knighthood of the garter, tore it from his dress and arrested him. He then bundled off to the tower, never saw the king again. And that's fatal, because if he'd seen the king, he might well have changed the king's mind. All you need to do often with Henry VIII is look him straight in the eye, because this, this curiously cowardly man hated-looking people in the eye. And, and and so Thomas Cromwell was never given that chance by his enemies. So there he was languishing the tower. He wrote letters to the king. The king needed more in, in evidence for why the Anne of Cleves' marriage could be denu- annulled, and Cromwell wrote those letters. And there's a, 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 a very touching one where there's a postscript from Thomas Cromwell in his own hand saying, Your Grace, I beg you, mercy, mercy, mercy. I suspect the king never heard that, because I think the letter would have been read to him by Cromwell's enemies. So no mercy, except that when he did come to the scaffold to be executed, he was not hanged, drawn, and quartered, as he could have been. The charge against him was traitor. Or he could have been burned at the stake, because some of the other charges were heretic. Instead, he was simply beheaded which is actually the best way to get executed in Tudor England. It's nice and quick. And on the scaffold, there he was. Uh, I th- i think by this stage, the king was sort of, his anger was abating because beside Thomas Cromwell on the scaffold stood a friend of his, the famous poet, Sir Thomas Wyatt, well, was basically a sort of client of Cromwell's. And he'd been allowed to stand with uh, his old friend, on the scaffold and Cromwell gave a very dignified speech the sort of speech you have to give before you're arrested uh, before you're executed and then turned to Thomas Wyatt and said gentle wyatt pray for me and then laid his head on the block and the king the the, the executioner did the deed so it was a good death a dignified death I think the king was soon regretting what he had
1: done. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
2: Yes, something completely different. Uh, I'm, I'm going back to my other great strand, these, these um, huge histories of lots of stuff. And this time, the book will be called Sex and the Church, a history and it will take us from the origins of Christianity and Judaism and Greek culture through to the present day. Uh, and all the things, the very varied things the church has said about sex and gender and marriage. Uh, it's something which I, it's a project I've long cherished. and I've talked a lot about this subject through my career so important because Western Christianity, Christianity of the United States and Europe is so preoccupied by sex at the moment. And a lot of very stupid and silly and simple things are said about sex in the church. And I want to interestingly complicate them. And perhaps the temperature will die down on all the arguments about sex as a result. I hope so anyway.
1: Well, it sounds like a fascinating, worthy project. And maybe we could have you back to discuss that book when it's done. I hope so. (laughs) Well, uh, Professor McCulloch, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much.